Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Military History Podcast. My name is Jacob. With me today, again, is Liam. How goes it, Liam? Going well, Jacob. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Just uh, very sore. Uh, the uh, the other day, um, Mondays is my um, what we call my leg day at the gym. So usually Tuesdays, that means my sore day. So you know, hanging in there. Mm. Well, good luck with that. Yep, it's uh, it's fun times. But uh, so uh, a couple things as well, just a couple quick announcements. So uh, this is going to be the start of a weekly episode. So we, we release the first few episodes uh, within a pretty small time frame. In about a week, we lose five episodes. But for now on, just to give you more time with writing the episodes and whatnot, we're going to go ahead and re- go on a weekly release schedule. But if you're a member of the Patreon, which is only $3 a month, you get two episodes per week instead of one. So uh, there's your there's your incentive, dear viewer, for that. <laughs> but uh, so we're going to go ahead and uh, start the episode. So how much do you know about a little island called Guadalcanal, Liam? Uh, not much other than a fair amount of shenanigans went on around, uh, say, like 1942. Yeah, yeah. A, a few things happened Yeah, during, uh, during between, you know, 1941 and 1945 there. Uh, but if you answer that you didn't know too much about it, you would have that in common with uh, the Army, the Air Corps, and the Navy during uh, World War II, because we're talking about the Guadalcanal campaign. So, I'm I'm only more confident in our, our armed forces, knowing that they knew just as much about the, the island as I did. Oh, I mean, they probably—honestly, it's probably less, less than, less than what you and I both know about it, like, before. Yeah, it's— uh, it's 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 pretty rough. So we're going to go ahead and start. Just give you guys a little bit of background. Oh, and uh, I wanted to also say, so th- uh, this episode is the first episode in the series we're doing. Uh, we're looking to make it about five parts. And I'm mostly going to focus on the uh, the land war in Guadalcanal. I am going to, of course, talk about the naval war because the naval war is really important. But I wanted to make this like a five-episode series rather than a ten-episode series. Because uh, the naval warfare is just there's a lot that happened there too, and that could honestly be its own series. So, so I am going to boats. talk about it. Do what? So many boats. We lost so many boats. Yeah, so yeah. They, they, they call it now. Yeah, they call iron bound sound for a reason. Iron iron bottom sound. But uh, so so yeah, I'm I'm going to go over kind of the beats of the naval battles and talk about why they're significant. But I'm not going to go into as much details as I will the land campaign. So just just to make you guys aware. So. We're going to go ahead and start. So just kind of introduce the setting. So, of course, we all know December 7th, 1941, Prague was bombed. And in early 1942, the Allies were on a sort of losing streak in the Pacific against the Japanese. Uh, by the end of February, the Japanese had conquered a vast swath of the Pacific, capturing Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, the Philippines, and most of the territory of the Dutch East Indies, in addition to New Guinea, much of New Guinea, and the Southwest Pacific Islands. And this area in particular posed a problem for the Allies because the main allied base of building up their forces to hit back against the Japanese was, of course, Australia. So if the Japanese start building airfields along the Solomon Islands and in New Guinea, that could interfere with allied uh, naval traffic and air traffic going towards Australia. So that becomes a very big deal for them. So, if you've ever played the game Risk, this is if you're trying to build the Australian supercontinent and somebody has taken the, the island chains connecting you to Asia uh, and essentially trapping you there. Yeah, pretty, pretty much, yeah. Because once you hit Australia, there's not really much else, you know, nowhere else you can really go. So if you get bottled in there, you're kind of screwed. 
but uh, famously, um, famously, uh, what do you call it? Fam- famously, big players of risk of the Japanese in World War II. Yes. So yes. So they yeah, they did invent it. Yeah, don't don't look that up. It's 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 true. I promise. Only facts here on not another military podcast. Only only the facts. So uh, by June 1942, the Japanese <clears throat> excuse me. The Japanese naval expansion had been checked to the battles of Coral Sea and Midway, although his army had not really been um, really checked at all really much. They were still on a pretty solid winning streak uh, and it very much intact and had not yet suffered a defeat at the hands of the Allies. So this brings us to our, our, our very happy little island called Guadalcanal, where nothing bad would ever happen. So Guadalcanal is roughly 25 miles wide. It contains a mountain range that commands the island with the highest peak named Mount Austin, reaching 7,000 feet. So aside from that, it was mostly covered in hills and thick jungle, and it also crisscrossed by numerous rivers and streams, and reefs also ringed the uh, outside of the island, making it difficult for ships to maneuver. So previously, the Solomon Islands had fallen under the British Solomon Islands Protectorate uh, during the pre-war period, and uh, at the time of which the war broke out in 1941, they had a population of just under 100,000, with there being... 500 Europeans, around 200 Chinese, and roughly 94,000 natives. Uh, the only real development to the island had been the establishment of some coconut plantations by the European colonists. So there wasn't really much of a presence on Guadalcanal when the war broke out. And then as soon as the Japanese started you know, steamrolling across the Pacific, the British only had a few uh, government officials and a few soldiers on the island. So they pretty much evacuated everyone and just let the Japanese roll on up. So... Now, some important developments are about to come out. So, on June 8th, 1942, the Japanese landed on Guadalcanal and began constructing an airfield and um, for which they could actually go ahead and start launching some bombers here. Let me go ahead. Notes. Gotta love when Google Chrome decides to, like, launch you, like, three pages forward in your notes. <laughs> but uh, so the, the, the Japanese at this point have decided... Uh, just they're going to start taking over any island they can and if they can build an uh an airstrip on it they are going to they are they're looking for this both kind of air and sea domination yes yeah, so this is basically the beginning of the island hopping strategy so japanese would build all these airfields on these various tiny little islands i mean i mean some of these islands that we're you know going to later in the world like tarawa is only like four miles wide so just really tiny specks of land uh, just in the middle of the Pacific, and then the guy that's kind of acts as a barrier for the Allied advances. And then the Americans are, of course, going to, you know, go ahead and hop from island to island, going from airfield to airfield, eventually taking them all the way to the doorstep of Japan. So, naturally, though, this little landing Guadalcanal immediately started just terrifying the Allied commanders because they're worried that the Japanese are going to cut off access to Australia. So, they immediately begin planning an operation to go ahead and uh, take uh, that island and islands in the Solomon chain. So we're going into the planning stage now. So after Midway, the commanders of the Pacific launched uh, the process of deciding how best to exploit their victory. So they managed to sink four carriers at Midway and have this massive victory. And they're deciding, okay, how do we go ahead and best jump off of this victory? So uh, as generals are wont to do, they're sort of bickering over strategy command almost immediately. Like if there's one thing that you have to know about generals and admirals is that they are petty bitches and they have massive egos. So, which largely has not changed. So, King, who was the chief of naval operations for the Navy, won an overall command at Mark MacArthur, who controlled army forces in the Pacific. So, 
George Marshall, the chief of staff of the War Department, actually went to bat for MacArthur in this instance, arguing that MacArthur's position and knowledge should be on the basis for coordinating Allied efforts during the operation. So MacArthur, of course, famously commanded soldiers in the Philippines previously. So Marshall, you know, argued that his experience and knowledge should be of some use in this and that he should probably have command. Uh, King didn't like this so much, though. So King replied that since the Pacific was mostly a naval area, MacArthur should submit himself to naval command, going as far as to say the operation, quote, could not be conducted in any other way. So just planting his flag in the sand, just like my way or the highway, you got to deal with it. Um, Marshall initially held off from replying, but then that's this led MacArthur just to launch one of his biggest bitch fits of his career. So what ended up happening was MacArthur then presented Marshall with, in his words, evidence that the Navy sought to take over all operations of the Pacific, arguing that the Army would assume a passive role which the soldiers would only be occupying forces under the command of the Navy or Marine commanders. So this is basically any army general's worst nightmare is to be just like a completely have no, you know, autonomy and just to be completely under, you know, the thumb of whatever Navy or Marine or even worse, Marine commander, you know, like tells you to do. So that's, they hate that. I mean, so to be fair to the, in, to the Navy in this case, they have the boats. Yeah, so they, you kind of need those in the Pacific. Kind of need like you kind of have to make concessions here because like it, I'm pretty sure the army the limit of their capabilities are some army aircraft, um, and like they haven't made hovercraft yet. So never mind. They have some <laughs> yeah, army we're, aircraft. We're still we're still a few decades down the road from hovercraft. Yeah, so they got they got a little while. <laughs> So yeah, the Pacific has a good bit of water in it. So I I, I understand that that's that the point is fairly valid. So uh, then Mark Arthur, uh, you know, shot back and vowed he would quote take no steps or action with reference to any component of my command except under direct orders from Marshall. So basically, saying, like, I'm not going to do anything unless Marshall says it's okay. Huh, I'm not going to listen to you at all. Huh, like. <sighs> Well, MacArthur is just—he's the more you read about him, just the more you realize he's just such an egomaniac, which is all all the shit that he did. And I feel like my kind of partial fascination with him mainly comes from the fact that we have a mall named after him. Yeah, uh, Norfolk. Yeah, in 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 Norfolk. Norfolk. Um, yes, the correct way to say it. Uh, <laughs> But we have a mall named after him, so I was always wondering, like, well, who is this guy? Who is this MacArthur that you know? In, in this great era of, like, early 2000s southeastern Virginia, uh, why have we named a, a mall after this man? It turns out it was a, a crazy general uh, who was very much an egomaniac. And one uh, the Chinese. Very into himself. And most importantly, wanted to nuke the Chinese at one point. <laughs> and we're not talking about their microwave here, you know? Like, we're talking no. about the country. We are, so. we are we are talking about dropping nuclear bombs on China. Very, very much like one of the only presidents who was more than willing to use nuclear warfare during the Cold War. But that is another podcast. Yes, that's a we're we're going to go over the Korean War. I'm sure at some point. Uh, I do. I mean, the fifties were just a wild time because it's kind of that area where they like they hadn't really it hadn't sunk in yet that these nuclear weapons were like world ending you know like weapons. Yeah. they're kind of like oh we could just use them on a battlefield right and they're like no i don't think test them test them all throughout the pacific <laughs> oh Who yeah cares about the effects <laughs> nothing bad could happen what are you talking about like you know oh, pollution pollution you know radiation radiation we don't need but, uh, uh the ozone layer is is fine to have a few holes in it 
Yeah, what what what's what's a few fish in the ocean, anyways, right? You know, but anyways, that's that's for later on. So eventually, though, uh, the two generals got over their egos and agreed to plan and co-named it Operation Watchtower. So this plan consisted of three different main operations. So Task Force One under Admiral Nimitz, who is a Pacific Ocean Air's commander, would take Chilagi and the Santa Cruz Islands on August the first. Task Force Two would take the islands of Ley, Salamoya. And the north uh, west, I'm sorry, northeast coast of New Guinea. There's also going to be a lot of uh, Pacific, you know, like names in here. So some of them are going to pronounce well, some of them not so much. <laughs> but they also have Task Force Three, which was supposed to capture the Japanese base of Rabaul in the adjacent positions in the New Britain, New Ireland area. Rabaul was a massive base at the time for the Japanese. They had a whole bunch of aircraft and men there, and they would uh, had a massive airfield. They would constantly send, you know, planes, you know, bombing every which way from Rabaul. So now you may have noticed that you did not hear the name Guadalcanal among any of those islands' name. It was because they didn't realize that the Japanese actually started building an airfield there until July 3rd. So, oh, yeah, only about like less than a month from when they would actually like land soldiers. They landed soldiers on August 7th and they didn't realize that they were actually building an airfield there until July 3rd. So, so it was almost like they came across it by accident and it was like. While planning for everything else, they kind of realized, like, oh, hey, look, there's an island over here. Maybe we should scout it out, see if we could do something with it. Oh, hey, the Japanese! Oh, fuck. <laughs> we expect them to be there. Like, it's, yeah, you, you don't normally hear about, like, them just switching over entire operations within, like, a month's time. So usually no. because the, the planning uh, doesn't typically go that well when you yeah, actually do it sounds that. Like, uh, it sounds like if it was only a month until boots on the ground sounds like things may have gotten a bit rushed or chaotic yeah yeah we'll we'll, we'll go into that just you wait <laughs> so when the reports were received the allied command uh, and immediately removed the santa cruz islands and uh, replaced them with guadalcanal it's placed and the island of guadalcanal was codenamed cactus in this operation so for some reason so famously uh, a very um a very well-known place where you'd find the cactus, the Pacific Islands. Cactus, but, cacti, yeah, you never know. Yeah, anywhere. The yeah, jungle. But, uh, life, the jungle. Fa- life famous, finds a way. Fa- famously a very dry place where uh, there's not much water, where cactus love to flourish. Look, man, I I live in a very kind of foresty apartment complex, and there's a cactus growing across the parking lot in, <laughs> in the woods. So I don't know what to tell you. Cactuses I mean, can grow anywhere. <laughs> I, I suppose you're right. That's, that that is going to start going to Guadalcanal instead of a cactus farm. But uh, that's my retirement plan now. So, <laughs> so as you can imagine, from being only about a month uh, from when you have boots on the ground, problems immediately begin to surface during the planning stage. So most of the intelligence gained uh, about the island of Guadalcanal was due to dated maps and charts. And it was also going to be very difficult to manage air cover for such a remote island, even with aircraft carriers. So Admiral Gormley, who was the chief naval commander in the area, had no aircraft carriers at the time. They later on would get them. By this point, he had no aircraft carriers, uh, only 282 land-based aircraft for which to cover the massive South Pacific area. Now, that actually sounds like a lot of aircraft, but we consider just how big of an area they were tasked with. It's really not that much. And not to mention at the time, most of these planes were antique biplanes. Some of them were from the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then, so, I mean, the Japanese at the time had what was essentially the most advanced fighter uh, plane in the uh, in the war, or not, not, not in the war, but in the Pacific, the A-670 fighter plane. 
Uh, it was it was basically out, it outclassed essentially almost everything the Allies had at that point. And uh, only a few modern fighter aircraft like the Grumman F-4F Wildcat fighters were available. And all these aircraft didn't really have the range to cover the southern Solomon Islands. So the only available airfields were on the was on the island of Espirito Santo, which was 125 miles away from Guadalcanal. So, and I'm going to go ahead and go into a little bit of like kind of what it was like to build the isle or the airfield on Espirito Santo. So as soon as the CBs, which are like naval construction workers, started constructing the airfield on Espirito Santo, they immediately started falling ill with malaria. So oh. this yeah, this is something that every military force in the Solomons is going to run into is that it fucking sucks to fight in the jungle because of all the diseases, malaria, yeah, dengue, fever, not inoculated or anything like that. Yeah. And then, so they're just going to have men just come down with the malaria just constantly. And, and then if one person gets like malaria or some exotic disease and falls ill and like, it's too ill to work, they get transferred out and you bring in somebody else who is, not inoculated with the region and may you know catch malaria and fall out so yeah or may even be like a green soldier who doesn't have an experience you know exactly. so you're, you're yeah. pulling experienced guys off the line because of disease so but uh and then so there was also a shortage of replacement parts crews engines and mechanics for the planes in this air force as well uh oh. Gromley and macarthur decided to meet on july 8th and they both agreed that there were going to be issues maintaining air superiority over the islands in contrast, the Japanese had bases all around the islands that allowed them to bring overwhelming numbers of aircraft to bear on Guadalcanal. So this led MacArthur and Gromley to cable the Joint Chiefs of Staff with their apprehensions uh, for this uh, problem, stating, quote, The initiation of the operation at this time, with a reasonable assurance of air coverage during each phase, would be attendant with the gravest risk. So we call this foreshadowing. <laughs> so if they, they know going into this, hey... Things will go bad if we if we try to go through with, with this kind of air coverage. Yeah, this is going to be a problem. Just letting you guys know. Covering our asses here. And uh, the joint later te- they are. They're yep. on Guadalcanal. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry, what? And a month later they are on Guadalcanal. <laughs> yep. So now we're not there yet. So the Joint Chiefs did not receive this message fondly with Admiral Turfer, T- Turner, Chief of the War Plans Division, believing that speed encountering the Japanese buildup was of the essence. He also knew that MacArthur would rather rush to launch an attack on Rabaul, which is a much stronger target than a more modest Guadalcanal Sally. So MacArthur really wanted to go ahead and just immediately rush towards the main Japanese base at Rabaul, kind of just cut the head off the snake. You know, the um, Rabaul was supplying all of his other Japanese garrisons, and again, like we mentioned, had this massive airfield. So MacArthur just wanted to go ahead and immediately go rush there. And then, you know, uh, the Joint Chiefs were like, Actually, though, like we're not really at the point to where we can attack such a massive base, so let's go ahead and go for this Alec Wall Canal instead. So uh, now yeah, we're like going a, to go like a nice little warm up. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, dive like, in. We'll take care of the small airfield. <laughs> give our boys some practice on the ground. Then hey, onto a ball. Quick, quick little twenty minute, you know, like little battle here. Just yeah, in and yeah, out. Yeah, we're good we'll to go, a, right? Yeah, quick adventure. We're good. I can't, I can't believe I made a fucking Rick and Morty reference in this, <laughs> in this, in this, in this fucking podcast, Lord. Um, yeah, just a royal is a, is a sex shit. Anyways, so <laughs> normally uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and go into the a little bit of talking about the codes and the code reading as well, uh, as is very pertinent to the intelligence. So normally sixty uh, on a good day, on a normal day. 60% of the Imperial Navy messages were intercepted, with 40% transcribed, and only about 10 to 15% were covered. 
So this is on a normal day, right? This is the best, you know, we're doing on an average day. So right before the Guadalcanal campaign, however, the Japanese switched the coding system. And uh, according to, uh, I'm getting a lot of this information from the book, uh, Guadalcanal, Definitive Account to Landmark Battle by uh, Richard B. Frank, which is a great book. Definitely recommend it. But according to Richard B. Frank, the quote he uses here is, uh, American code breaking entered an eclipse that shrouded virtually the entire Guadalcanal campaign. So during almost the entire campaign, they are just not able to read the Japanese codes at all, which is really, if you'll remember, is what largely led us to win Midway was the fact that we exactly. could that, read the Japanese we, we, codes. We won Midway because we could break their code. And then all of a sudden, just, hey, we're going to do a 180, switch up everything, leave you guys in the blind. Hope you guys have fun with that. Could, could you just imagine, I just imagine the fucking like looks in the room among the code breakers when they realize the Japanese switched the code, just like, oh, fuck. Like, what do we yeah, do they, now? They translate a code using the old system and it comes out to just like a report on taxes. And it's like, right? that is not a real message. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't think this is correct. Uh, oh, fuck, I think I switched the code. So now we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about the 1st Marine Division. So the 1st Marine Division was uh, chosen to spearhead the assault in Guadalcanal. They were not ready, though. Uh, they were not fully staffed, and much of the equipment was dated. Uh, for instance, they had, used, had to make do with the 1903 Springfield rifle, which was a bolt-action rifle, uh, which you know was the main U.S. rifle during World War One. Because the M1 Garands weren't ready yet for the Marines, they uh, they were getting they were, you know the Army had priority on the M1 Garands, uh, which are of course semi-automatic rifles. You know would have given the Marines more firepower had they got them initially, but because of like the supply constraints, they did not get them going into Guadalcanal. So no satisfying pings while reloading. Uh, I know, I know, man. I would have been so fucking pissed to be a Marine and just to hear those Army guys coming in just ping ping like. You motherfuckers! Like I would have been pissed to be in war. <laughs> to be to be in, I would have just been pissed to, <laughs> to be, be in the fucking combat. Guadalcanal. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I do not want to be in the jungle, so I, I think our priorities are different. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, I would. I would much, much if I were to be in World War Two. I mean, I, I obviously wouldn't want to at all if given the chance, but I would much, much rather be sent to the European theater than the Pacific theater. Uh, well, just have have fun. Uh, thank you for your your service if you could time travel back <laughs> for killing some nazis for us yes I, I i demand you thank me for my service and then i get a free uh free luncheon at waffle house <laughs> but uh <laughs> <laughs> god damn it so uh, after they undertook uh, so the marines did the tackle training in new zealand and then d-day was officially set for august 1st 1942 so while they were in new zealand uh there's a wellington newspaper that did a bit of an oopsie it was named the dominion and they actually may have alerted the Japanese uh, when it announced that, quote, it may be significant that the censor pa passed the news of the arrival of the complete equipped expeditionary force of the American Marines in the South Pacific port recently, as Marines are not usually sent to bases where action is not expected. So basically, like, letting whoever wants to read this newspaper know, like, hey, a bunch of Marines are here. Hmm, they usually aren't sent here just to be, you know, like in New Zealand. They're probably going yeah. to combat somewhere close by. Like, I wonder yeah. where. Just basically alerting any Japanese that can speak or read English. Hey, a large contingent of Marines are about to go island hopping. Yeah, they're, they're let's just say the, 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 uh, the U.S. is very lucky that the Japanese were just as bad uh, about intelligence as they were at this point. Because it could have gone very, very badly had it been the other way. So, 
Uh, now, there was still the issue of inadequate intelligence on the islands itself. So General Vandegrift, who headed the 1st Marine Division, actually wanted to launch a raid to contact Martin Clemens, who was a Commonwealth Coast Watcher. So the Coast Watchers were a group of uh, people that were made up of kind of a mix of like um, of like priests and government officials and like formerly like British soldiers who were all were in the Solomon Islands. And then what they would do is they would, you know, just kind of run around the islands and then keep track of the Japanese movements by, you know, land, sea, and air. And then they would radio to the allies and let them know, you know, where they're going. So they delivered a very invaluable service during the Guadalcanal campaign. So Vandegrift wanted to go ahead and make contact with Martin Clemens, who was the leader of the Coast Watchers to gather intelligence. Uh, but th- this was deemed, quote, too dangerous by Admiral Gormley, which I answer, it's fucking war? <laughs> like, last yeah. time I checked... There's a lot of danger in war, and yes, there might be sacrifices, but there's also like valuable information and valuable things there that could lead to countless future deaths being prevented. Absolutely. What if what if this guy has uh, information that says Iwo Jima is not just surface structures and actually has a thousand miles of tunnels underground? It's a bloodbath. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine if they had that kind of intelligence, you know, before they went to any of these battles. I mean, intelligence has the potential to save, like you said, massive amounts of lives. So it's it's de- it's generally considered to be pretty worth the risk if you can gain some extra intelligence before going into battle. So, uh, so construction workers, merchants, civil servants, and basically anyone who had ever been a Guadalcanal the government was aware of was interviewed in the process of gathering intelligence about Guadalcanal just to get an idea about the island's topography and geography. Despite all this, though, they, so they basically, like, what, like, if you just shot Guadalcanal a passing glance, you know, like, you passed it, you know, in a cruise ship at some point, they're like, you know, the, the army is tracking you down, they're like, so what did the island look like? <laughs> Can you just give us any information at all about Guadalcanal, please? We're begging you. So, despite all of this, though, the Marines never possessed an accurate map of the island during the entire campaign which is just astounding to me. Like, just, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's insane that, like, entire, like, regiments or even, like, platoons are, like, going off of, like, Dave's hand-drawn map of, like, <laughs> well, we've walked four miles, and, like, we have trees? There's a creek <laughs> here, 300 paces from camp, uh, and there's a lot of Japanese this way. Why'd you draw a dragon on the map, Dave? <laughs> yeah, like, here be dragons. It's what you put at the edge of every map. Yeah, right? That not that what you just draw on every map? Like I thought I thought, you know, like all, all good map drawers did that. I just wanted to give a give a little flair for the dramatic guys, you know. Like, I'm not Amerigo Vespucci. What do you want from me? <laughs> for real. So and then the fifth Marine Division, along with the first, was added to the assault. And gradually a plan came to in which uh, one group of Marines was supposed to seize the airfield at Lunga Point. Well, the other group was deceived nearby Tulagi and the twin islands of Kabutu Tenemboko. So planning is really finally beginning to come together. So as the Marines loaded up the ships to head to Guadalcanal, they were immediately pelted with the freezing rain in New Zealand and Auckland, which is where they were based. And uh, instead of giving help, the New Zealand dock workers insisted on hourly tea breaks and outright refused to work with the inclement weather, forced the Marines to do all the work, which is just like, just hilarious. Like these, these odd... The Marines are just out there like, hey, you guys, you know, my lend us a hand. And it's like, but we have tea, though. I mean, to be fair, tea is pretty amazing, especially in cold weather. I mean, perfect. Those Marines missed out. Uh, <laughs> For real, yeah. The, the, 
New Zealanders are just like, guys, like I'm union, like I don't get paid enough for this shit. Like I'm I'm not going out there helping you load the load the boats. I don't care if you're trying to save us from a you know hypothetical Japanese invasion, you know, like they're not let me keep my team warm. They're not paying me extra for this. <laughs> yeah. I, I in a way I, I kinda respect it. So yeah. stick to your guns. Absolutely. Even even against men who have who have actual guns, full yeah. automatic guns. Uh, so this though this this little uh this little little tiff here <laughs> further delayed the expedition, which was forced to change D Day from August seventh uh, instead of August first. So this brings us to the actual landing. So finally, on August 7th, 1942, 11,000 Marines landed on Luka Points on Guadalcanal uh, during the morning. So there was massive naval bombardment and air bombardments, and the Marines landed. So miraculously, the Japanese were actually caught by surprise, uh, and the Marines' landing was completely unopposed, which would pretty much never happen again throughout the entirety of the Pacific War, for the most it, part. Was so. this one of the first ever landings of a Marine on an island hop? Because from from everything I understand... Every like marine or army landing on an island just went terribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so with Guadalcanal, it's interesting because I, I remember reading in my um, I took when I was when I was researching for a master's degree, I was taking a course on the history of amphibious warfare. It was talking about how there's basically three methods you can defend against an amphibious assault. So there is the naval method, which is when you go ahead and you try to use ships to basically sink. The, uh, the invaders before they can actually get to land. You can go ahead and mount a fence at the water's edge, which is when you just place all of your soldiers you know, on the beach and you try and just you know, shoot everyone down that comes, comes your way and just force them back into the ocean. And there's also the inland method, which is when you go ahead and you have troops that are based you know, inland and then they go ahead and rush to try to uh, meet any kind of you know, landing force as it's coming in. So at this point, the Japanese are, uh, well, I will say the Japanese will later to try to retake Wall Canal. They're going to use a naval defense. They're going to try and use their Navy to go ahead and uh, destroy any ships and try and keep supplies from coming into the Marines. Later on, throughout pretty much the rest of the Pacific War, they would switch to a defense at the water's edge where they would just mass soldiers and create you know, bunkers and obstacles, machine gun nests, and everything to try to basically push the Marines back into the sea. So, but, you know, luckily, like, like I said, the Japanese didn't know they were coming. And also there weren't really any Japanese soldiers uh, stationed on Guadalcanal at this point. There was like a construction battalion and there were a few soldiers. But when they heard the naval bombardment uh, before the actual invasion, the construction workers pretty much fled into the jungle and just ran away. So. Smart man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. If I'm a fucking construction worker, like I'm, I'm getting paid to just fucking, you know, like make concrete on this sweaty malaria ridden island Pacific. As soon as I hear bombs dropping, I'm fucking gone. Like, yep. see ya. Uh, I have not been trained for warfare. I am not getting caught up in this. Yeah. I, uh, I'm just gonna go take my chances in the the jungle, uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah. And a lot of, I should also mention a lot of them were also constructed, uh, are conscripted Korean laborers too, that were brought there forcefully. So those guys have even less of a reason to give a fuck about oh, defending yeah, exactly. the no. island. So they're gone. The minute the guards are distracted, I'm gone. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I'm like, I'm out of here. So, uh, so yeah, the Marines actually had several advantages as well. So there was a cloudy weather, gave the Marines a reprieve from the Japanese aircrafts. There weren't, luckily for them, there weren't any Japanese aircraft flying around at this point. Uh, so, oh, and just a little fun fact for you. 
So the first casualty, and I'm using casualty to mean, you know, like wounded or dead in this instance. So the first casualty on the, uh, for the Marines for the Guadalcanal campaign was a Marine who sliced his hand with a machete while trying to open up a coconut. Ah, no, he made the the terrible mistake. No sharp objects on a, a round spherical thing. <laughs> no, just, just no sharp objects for Marines, <laughs> just in general. They, they, they can't mean, handle yeah, them. These are, these are guys that famously eat the crayons, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nothing ever goes well if you, if you give a bladed object to a Marine. Yeah, that's that just that that just struck me as just being so hilarious because it's just the most marine thing ever. Like these guys land on this beach, and guys just trying to open up a coconut and slice. It's, his it's hand the and most like, American oh, thing ever. <laughs> honestly, hey, here we are at war. Uh, let's go. You know, we're gonna fight the enemy. There's nobody on the beach. Everybody we see is either running away or we've dealt with like some small arms fire. And uh, Jim just I mean, lops three fingers off. Uh, because he tried to he tried to open a coconut. Mm-hmm. True, this man truly made the ultimate sacrifice for his country. So, did he, did he get a purple heart? <laughs> I really, really hope so. I hope man, he got a purple would, heart and just went home. And was like, yep, got wounded at war. It was terrible. I, I, I mean, I know that didn't happen, but it would just be so hilarious to see the stink eyes, you know, that were, would have been given to him from all the other men, like in like the wounded bay. You know, who got like you know hit by a shell or like got like you know shot in the arm by like you know a uh, like a mortar or something, and just got one guy with the fucking fucking coconut machete hand. And he's there. He is holding the bloody coconut with a little straw sticking out of it. Yes, sipping <laughs> coconut milk. It's got the one of the little umbrellas on there too, and everything. You know, exactly. It's, it's like, like a I'm a maybe some of my tight guys. You want some? Like. <laughs> So shortly after the Marines landed on the island, they immediately started encountering the difficult terrain. So jungle was extremely thick, so much that scarcely any light reached the forest floor, and they could only see a few feet into the jungle. So the island was crisscrossed by numerous streams and rivers, which are populated by snakes, crocodiles, and giant river rats. And there was also mosquitoes, also beginning to dish out malaria and dengue fever, as previously mentioned. So... Uh, so yeah, the jungle is is neutral. The jungle hates everybody who, who whoever steps the jungle. It, it doesn't matter who you are, you are going to get fucked over by that jungle if you try to fight the jungle. So yeah, the jungle usually wins. Uh, it's got a lot of uh, hazardous elements. Uh, I think the most terrifying thing, crocodiles, is one thing you expect that in a jungle. River rats, dear God, <laughs> if I see like a, a like a foot long furry object just coming out of the water trying to bite my ankles off i may die of shock <laughs> this, this, this man saw a river rat and fainted so he's he's getting pulled off the island yeah you get pulled off the line because river rat i mean i i, I saw my fair share of river rats at uh i my house old house at hilton village in newport news so i mean i, I think these rats are probably much bigger though so yeah those, i probably yeah, those were those were not river rats. Those were just regular rats that lived in the sewer that opened up into a ravine near our house. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I probably would be there with you. Not gonna lie, if I saw giant river rats that are probably the size, the size of a foot. So, uh, naturally, though, as the Marines are starting to traipse through the jungle towards the airfield, communication and command begin to break down as the Marine units became separated from one another in the thick jungle. As some forged ahead, and others moved at a snail's pace. So by the end of the day, the first Marines had only made it a mile past disembarkment. So they're only a mile past the beach. 
And as the Marines took shelter on the first night, Paranormal took hold of the dark and the foreboding jungle. So the Marines start to get, you know, the itchy trigger fingers. They start to, you know, see Japanese soldiers, you know, behind every rock and every bush. And at one point, there was one Marine nearly shot, uh, a guy named Colonel Cates, uh, who remarked, quote, Luckily, he was an artilleryman, so he missed. <laughs> you, you gotta love the right humor of these guys. Just like, oh, he, he shot on me, but yeah, he's, he's a shitty shot, so he's, you, I'm, I'm all good about it. You kind of have to have that humor in a, a life-or-death situation. Oh, absolutely. Because otherwise you're just going to be a nervous wreck. Yeah, it, just, it keeps you sane, absolutely. So, uh, let's see. So... The Japanese 11th construction unit, like I said, had initially fled the jungle during the initial bombardment of the island. And uh, Captain Mosin rallied a few stalwarts for an attack, but they got lost in the jungle and returned to base without attacking any Marines. <laughs> so that was the first attempted action by the Japanese on Guadalcanal. was like a few guys from a construction battalion that got together and like tried to ambush the Marines at night, but they got lost in the jungle and went home. Yep, yeah. I mean, that would be my experience in the jungle just <laughs> trying to go out to do something get lost give up go home pretty much and that's something that you, this is going to be a pattern largely for the japanese because they're going to do a lot of them attacking on guadalcanal mainly once after the marines occupy the airfield so they're constantly going to go ahead and be advancing through the jungle and they're going to get lost and then like there's going to be battles where entire units like entire battalions sometimes even do not take part in the battles because they just got lost in the jungle and couldn't find their way back to their comrades. Like, like people have this thought that, you know, the Jap oh, the Japanese during World War II were these great jungle fighters. Like, they really weren't. It was just that they were more willing to go into the jungle than a lot of the Allied forces were in the beginning. Like, during the Malaya campaign, when they were going down the Malaya, uh, Malaya Peninsula towards Singapore, the British pretty much exclusively just stayed on the roads and wouldn't venture into the jungle at all which made them incredibly easy for the Japanese to outflank if they just went into the jungle. So, but, yeah, like I previously mentioned, the, the jungle is neutral, so it, it fucks over everybody, including the Japanese. So, Yeah, it's, it's nobody's home turf. You can adapt slightly to fight in it, but all in all, the jungle's going to win. Yeah, our armies come and go. The jungle is will always, will always be there. So, uh now the first. Now we're gonna get into the first marine actually killed in the island was killed by friendly fire. He went out of his hole at night and had bungled saying back the password Lilliputian. So he tried to say it, uh, couldn't really, <laughs> kind of fucked up saying it, and then got shot. So this is uh this I, is boding, boding very well yeah. for the marines in this battle. What a terrible thing to make a password. Like I get it's for safety and you don't want it to be a very common thing so that anybody could easily say it, but. Lilliputian? Yeah, well, I think the idea was that, you know, they I guess they thought that it would be hard for the Japanese to say, you know, with their accents, you know? So, I, that'd be my guess anyways, but yeah, I, I, I get you, though. Makes sense. I mean, it's it's kind of why the British used uh, the call signs uh, or the call-outs, like, I think it was Thunder and Flash in Europe, because the German word, or German spoken thought like speaking english for the word thunder is pronounced very differently than pronounced in english and it would give it a, a german away instantly yeah i'm trying to think in my uh because i know a little bit of german what is the german word for thunder it's like um uh, it's escaping me at the moment but next episode i'll think of <laughs> yeah there we when, go. when it when it's no longer relevant so 
meanwhile, though, on the nearby islands of Tulagi and Gavutu Tenembogo, the Marines that landed there had a much different go of it than the Marines that landed on Guadalcanal. The Japanese were actually, you know, on in force on those islands, and so the Marines did manage to capture the island after su- suffering about sixty percent casualties. So it is a much, much more fierce firefight than what the Marines are currently dealing with on Guadalcanal. Yeah, so that's the kind <clears throat> of landing you you normally hear about. Yeah, that's the kind of landing you expect when you hear about the Marines going a, a, into warfare against the Japanese, the Pacific during World War II. So. Uh, the very next day, though, the 5th Marines managed to take the Japanese airfield with virtually no resistance. So, and then the second day, things actually appear to be off to a pretty good start. You know, they've got the airfield, uh, there's you know, kind of almost no Japanese. Uh, things are, you know, going pretty good. So, uh, Lord, would it not stay that way? So, <laughs> during the second night, on night two of the Guadalcanal campaign, the Battle of Savile Island occurred, in which the J- Japanese managed to completely surprise the U.S. Navy and inflict one of the most humiliating defeats of the war. So the Americans lost uh, 1,077 men, the Japanese 107, and the Americans lost four heavy cruisers, some of the Japanese none. So basically what, what happened in this battle is that the Japanese at this at this time were very good at fighting uh, on the sea, were very good at fighting at night on the sea. And that's because the Americans at this time tended to rely too much on radar, which wasn't really reliable, especially when we have a lot of different islands in the way. Like this isn't just one island, you know, Guadalcanal. There's multiple islands in this, you know, in Solomon Island chain. So, you know, that's going to affect your radar performance. And uh, the Japanese also did a very good job training their crew to spot, you know, other ships at night. It was often said that you know, they kind of um, they consider kind of their watchers, you know, as kind of like their their human radar. It was often what they call them because they were so good at spotting ships at night. Um, so they basically inflicted this massive defeat on Admiral Turner, the American Admiral, and forced Turner basically just, you know, to set out for open sea and just to leave the Marines completely stranded. And, uh, you know, they also sunk a huge portion of the Marines' supplies and heavy equipment. So this left the Marines completely alone, uh, isolated, without any remaining supplies. And uh, that is where we'll pick up next time on the podcast. So what do you think of the uh, the campaign so far, Liam? Is it going well? So far, I mean, it started off well. They, you know, had a, a good, strong start with the invasion, minimal casualties, one coconut death, one... Uh, <laughs> one coconut wounding. One coconut wounding, sorry. <laughs> it's not a death yet. Uh, the blood loss could have led to something uh, yeah. further down the line, but... You're not wrong, uh, yeah. Uh, but definitely, uh, the... The Battle of Savo Island kicking off this kind of spiral of defeat for the Americans around Guadalcanal is, uh, like you said, it's an important naval battle. We'll get into it in its own right, but it really just leaves the Marines completely stranded. Uh, as you said, they have no more naval support. It's it's down to a handful of planes on the island and the Marines themselves. They lost most of their heavy equipment on the the ships that got raided by the Japanese that got through after they basically annihilated the the destroyer and heavy cruiser force uh, around the island. Uh, it it left the Americans in a bad spot uh, that they were basically fighting on the back foot for a while until the next uh, U.S. naval convoy arrived to help and yeah, subsequently I- got blowed up 
Yes, yes. And I also like to mention, too, so at this point, the airfield is not actually finished. So the Japanese started building the airfield, they didn't finish. The Marines would actually have to finish the airfield later themselves. So it's not like as soon as they capture the airfield, they can just start landing planes there. They can just start resupplying their forces. It would take them a little bit to actually finish the airfield. And then, um, and then which we're going to go into, you know, next episode. But so, yeah, the, the Marines are completely isolated. You know, they've got no means of you know, reinforcement whatsoever. They're and, on um, their own. Yes, just completely alone. And uh, one thing I also find really interesting about this battle is the fact that it occurred so early in the war and that there wasn't the, the Marines in the United States didn't have the confidence really yet in their in their armed forces. I mean, yeah, they had won at Coral Sea and Midway, but those are on the sea. They hadn't ever really faced the Japanese on land yet. And on land, the Japanese had seen nothing but victory. I mean, all across the Pacific. So, I mean, you, you've got battles like Iwo Jima and Okinawa. I mean, yeah, those battles, of course, had horrific casualties, not, you know, under understanding that at all. But those, I mean, the outcome was largely decided once the Marines landed. Like, we, like, everybody knew what was going to happen. But Guadalcanal was really one of those battles that, in many instances, we'll see this later, could have really gone either way at multiple points during the campaign. Yeah, this is very much a battle of the right thing happening for each side at the right time. We'll get into multiple different things, but there are several points in which the Japanese could have won this fight and taken Guadalcanal back. Uh, Even, like, had a lot of these, like, battalions, like you say, like, not gotten lost in the jungle for attacks, like, you could, they could have easily overwhelmed the American forces around the airfield. Uh, yeah. Or anything like that. Just, yeah, they were. It was fate kind of directing things and, and pushing the balance to either side in this kind of tangled mess of a battlefield. Yeah, in several instances, yeah. And I, I also would just like to point out, too, just how long the campaign would last. So uh, so let, let, let's compare this to another uh, much more famous Pacific battle, uh, Battle of Okinawa. So, how long do you think the Battle of Okinawa lasted, Liam? uh eight days uh it was about five weeks so uh oh, okay. so about a little over two months how long do you think Guadalcanal lasted uh oh like six months <laughs> six months yes yes six entire months so half of a year the americans are just you know are, are engaged in this battle on this tiny pacific island that nobody previously had ever heard of in the united states i mean I mean, there's like, you know, accounts of, you know, officers, you know, talking to the Marines and calling it Guadalcanar because they didn't know, you know, what how to actually say it correctly. And they're just constantly just on the edge of the seat thinking like, are we going to win this? Are we going to lose it? Like, what's going to happen here? So they, just... they plan this whole thing out in a month, expecting to be there for maybe a, a few days, a few weeks of fighting, then they'll move on. And it ended up taking half of a calendar year to yeah. sort out. Which half is... of a calendar year. So many bodies, so many raw tons of shipping, everything. So many planes shot down, so many uh, so many ships, you know, sunk. It's just the amount of resources that, you know, both sides are forced to just kind of throw into this campaign is just ridiculous. And it's it's crazy that you don't really don't hear about it very much, uh, very often. It's kind of usually a footnote, you know, like I said, everybody knows those famous battles, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, even Tarawa. But Guadalcanal really doesn't get much press. It's 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 a unique uh, aspect of the Pacific, probably 
because it's so early and it's really just the Marines working out all of the kinks of this whole island hopping thing that most people like they look at it for the, the lesson it taught, but there's, there's no glory in the Guadalcanal campaign. No, it's there's, very messy. Yeah. There's, there's no raise the flag, you know, on Mount Suribachi and there's no, you know, raising the flag in Shiri castle, like on Okinawa. It's just all a bunch of really pissed off, malnourished, you know, disease-riddled, sweaty guys fighting it out in a forgotten jungle on some island that most of the world has never heard of. So that, that's a decent summary of the of the entire Guadalcanal campaign. So, it's a great place to vacation. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, I, I would actually really love to go visit Guadalcanal one of these days, just, like, take a battlefield tour or something, like, go down there. I just have, like... I mean, yeah, I, I probably would have to go through a company to do that, but it, that that's on my that's on my bucket list of places. You know, it's it's no like you know, it's no Bastogne, you know, or uh, or like Dunkirk or any of those places. You know, like, but right. it's 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 up there. Yeah, if you ever want to go tour the Pacific. Yeah, you know, get get bitten by mosquitoes and probably threatened by crocodiles and everything. So maybe, maybe step on a Japanese mine and blow myself up. So who knows? Ooh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> but so I think that's a good that's a good place to go ahead and leave off there. So if you guys would like to go ahead and see some more episodes, you can go ahead and check out my website, which I will link in the description. I uh, go check out the Patreon as well. Like I said, only three dollars a month gets you access to bonus episodes, as well as the community Discord and other perks. And uh, yeah, go check out the Facebook and the Twitter. And um, and from them. Uh, or until next week, I would say just just don't fight in the jungle or on Guadalcanal, especially. Don't end up in the jungle. If like you're you know how to survive the jungle, go to the jungle. But try to avoid the jungle. For just now. Av- avoid the jungle if at all humanly possible. All right, take care, guys. Bye, everyone.